Before we start the show, I wanted to give you a heads up that this episode contains strong language and references some pretty adult themes. So maybe be careful before you play with kids around. Cool? Let's jump in. Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. That was Eddie Murphy as the character Dolomite in the new Netflix biopic, Dolomite is my name. Dolomite was a smooth-talking, rhyme-saying, kung-fu crime-fighting pimp brought to life in 1975 by comedian and actor Rudy Raymore. When I first got whiffed of Rudy Raymore, I was doing stand-up already, and I knew it wasn't traditional stand-up. It was funny for a different reason, just because how audacious it was. He really, honestly, and truly believed in himself. And there's a, a scene in the movie where he says, I want the world to know that I exist. I'm your host, Brandon Jenkins. Here on There's Something About Dolomite, we're taking you back to the funkiest time in film. Throughout the season, we'll explore Rudy Raymore's career, his cult classic Dolomite, and the lasting impact of the black exploitation movement. According to Rudy Raymore, he first came upon the mythical character Dolomite in the 1970s while working at a record store in Los Angeles to make ends meet. While there, he overheard a homeless man named Rico spitting whimsically explicit rhymes about a character named Dolomite. Here's Ron Cephas Jones, who played Rico in the Netflix film. How you like to sit down and tell me some of your stories? Cocaine shortage, my name, fuck is McClain. You can line 98 holes up against a wall, I bet you a dollar I can fuck them all. The stories were so hilariously shocking at the time that it occurred to Moore to record these tales, rework them with a new spin, and perform them as his own, eventually building out the character Dolomite to his liking and making a movie centered around his X-rated exploits. Tell him I want him out of here in 24 hours. And 23 of them are already gone. You understand? Al Jeffers, want me to get him, boss? I'll yeah. get the jive ass nigga. A true B-movie through and through, the original Dolomite, it's a sight to see. The film is packed with wide-body cars, stylish pimps, crime-fighting hoes, sex, drugs, an off-brand of martial arts, and comedic moments so oddly timed, it's difficult to tell if they were intentional or by accident. What's your name? It's Shy, short for Chicago. I hope you ain't cold as a windy city because the way I feel now, baby, I could show warm you up. It sounds a little weird to say considering the aforementioned, but there's something about Dolomite that feels innocent, almost childlike, albeit from a really twisted and obscene kid. Despite this charm, Upon the film's release in 1975, it was panned by critics who saw it as lowbrow, poorly constructed, and defensive. But Rudy Raymore knew that he was tapping into something special, that he was speaking to a certain audience. And he knew what they wanted. Although it was put together with a measly $100,000, the film was successful at the box office, earning $12 million and taking the relatively obscure and untraditional Rudy Raymore and pushing him further into the spotlight. So how does a struggling black comedian in the 70s go from performing hood folktales to a box office hit? Well, if the initial theme of Hollywood was to imagine a world where no black people existed, giving birth to responses ranging from erasure to stereotype to servant to the respectable Negro, the forthcoming era of film would obliterate those notions. What you get is the era of black exploitation. What you get is Dolomite. What you get is Rudy Raymore. All this made me want to dig deeper into the era of black exploitation to find out how it all began, who were the pioneers, and what were the reasons it was as criticized as it was revered. So that's what we're going to do on this show. 
We're going to take a look into the origin of the movement, the music, the costumes, the action scenes, the role of women in these films, and how all of this laid the groundwork for much of the culture we experience today. So to help us deconstruct what made the 60s and 70s such a ripe time for black exploitation to pop off and change black cinema, let's turn to this week's interview with Iowa State University professor, author, and black exploitation scholar, Dr. Novotny Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence, thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm. I want to start at the very beginning, just the term black exploitation and like what it really means. I think when I see the term, I understand where the black and black exploitation is, but can you help explain where the exploitation and black exploitation is? Because it kind of has a pejorative feel to it. Yeah, that's always the tough part. So there used to be a time in, in Hollywood where studios had full-on exploitation departments. And so the exploitation would be considered the trailer or would be a poster. And so the way that that essentially works is if we think about that in contemporary times is that if we have a film like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and we put Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's images on that film, we can say we're kind of exploiting their image. So that was one way in which, you know, exploitation used to be thought of. And so certainly in the 1970s, if we put Pam Greer's picture on the cover of Foxy Brown or on a poster for Foxy Brown, rather, we understand that there's kind of this element of exploitation in that traditional sense uh, in that poster. But at the same time, in that context, it wasn't considered a negative to think about those departments as exploitation. But that's one way that we can look at the term. The other Mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, we can start looking at, you know, what happened with African-American talent during the black exploitation movement. And that is that we had all these people working in these films in front of the camera, behind the camera, in in areas like craft services and 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 styling hair. And they had all this, this, this groundswell of work. And so, you know, more than any other point in time in, in motion picture history, we have all these African-Americans who are working. And then all of a sudden, when black exploitation comes to an end, much of that talent is cast aside and they're not working anymore. So in that regard, maybe it was African-Americans who were exploited because they were useful for a period. And then when Hollywood used all up all those resources up or used or, or black exploitation rather dried up in Hollywood, that was it. They didn't need them anymore. So that's one way in which we can look at exploitation, too. But then the final way that, you know, is an interesting consideration is that when we talk about some of these films like, say, A Cotton Comes to Harlem being set in in Harlem, and we think about the the economic and political conditions of, of Harlem and what life was like, and we put those those conditions on grand display in films, but perhaps don't pump some of that money back in the community to address them, did we exploit some of those conditions at the time? So I think it's a really multi-layered question, and I, and I don't know that any of those answers are necessarily wrong. I don't know that any of those things are just the right answer, but I think it's a combination of factors that we really have to think of when we talk about that term, black exploitation. Mm, I feel you. Yeah, I noticed you defined it sort of, um, you were using time as part of the definition, but yeah. I think it's also um, noticeable that you don't define it as a genre necessarily, yeah. a film yeah. genre. Why, why is that? Well, and that, that's one of the things I've been trying to trying to get at in my work, and I hope that people will, will catch on, is that because... Black exploitation is, is kind of a cycle of films. It's more, um, I kind of liken it to film noir. So there are characteristics that define black exploitation. So, for example, if we have a black exploitation film, we have to have a black hero or heroine. That's, if we don't have that, we don't have a black exploitation film. Um, <laughs> they're not going to be tokenized, right? They're, so they're going to be surrounded by other black characters in the film. They're going to be set in predominantly black urban locales. And so uh, we have many of these, you know, characteristics that define black exploitation. But underneath that classification, 
we also have different genres of films. So we have horror films like Blackula, you know, or Black Dracula. We have detective films like Cotton Comes to Harlem and Shaft. Um, we have, you know, action films like Coffee featuring Pam Greer or Cleopatra Jones featuring Tamara Dobson. So we see that black exploitation is kind of a style or perhaps a cycle or movement of films, but not necessarily a genre. And so I've been trying to work to correct that for years uh, and get people to think about it a little bit differently so that, one, we can give many of the films and the performers and directors their due. And at the same time, so we can make accounts of motion picture history and the black cinematic experience more complete by doing that as well. What takes place in the 60s and 70s that allows black exploitation to um, create itself and also thrive? Yeah. Um, I, combination of factors that I talk about. And I think that, you know, there, there, there are other circumstances, but there are three that I really like to highlight. And one of those is this problematic history of representation that we're talking about. So African-Americans, you know, this long period of time when they're just depicted as other and less than. Uh, and again, the most, you know, any of the stereotypes that you can think of that they're still, you know, prevalent, that people still recognize today, even if they don't believe them. When we talk about fried chicken and watermelon eating and lazy and, and stupid and, and all of that stuff, it's embodied in those early cinematic representations. And at some point, that has to change. People become tired of those kinds of images. And so that's the first thing. The second thing that I think really starts to push back against some of those things is that we get to the civil rights movement. And one of the things that I think is not common knowledge for some people is that as part of the civil rights movement, organizations like the NAACP were challenging Hollywood to be better too. And certainly Hollywood had to respond not only to the pressures exerted by the NAACP, but also to the changing ideology of the day. African-Americans are in the streets, they're demanding rights. And certainly, while I wouldn't say there was just this major change of heart, you have to start responding to the socio-political conditions that are taking place uh, in the streets. So we get the civil rights movement. And then the final thing, and this is why I say, I wouldn't sit here and try to say, oh, and people had a change of heart. Uh, you know, they, you know, Hollywood producers just look and they say, oh, we just feel so bad. They look at how we treated black folks for all these years. We have to be better, folks. Uh, I would love to be able to tell folks that. I would yes, that's what happened. Uh, but I can't tell people that. <laughs> because that's not what happened. Part of the thing that happened or, or that last characteristic, in addition to historic misrepresentation, civil rights, is that Hollywood is struggling financially in the 1960s. People were staying home to watch television. And so there's this decline. And so Hollywood needs something to, to energize itself. And so the thing that they find out is that black people will go to the movies. Now, go figure, right? I mean, <laughs> black people have been going to the movies all along. But <laughs> Hollywood was not really targeting the African-American demographic. And so, you know, coming out of the 1960s, you know, we have civil rights and then we have the emergence of black power. And the thing that happens is Cotton Comes to Harlem comes out in 1970 and it taps into those themes of civil rights and black power. And it puts these two black detectives on screen. Uh, the film is directed by Ossie Davis, who, who eulogized Malcolm X. And black people went to see it. You know, about 70 percent of the revenue of that very successful film, Cotton Comes to Harlem, comes from black people. And so Hollywood has to step back and go, oh, wait a minute. Like, they go to the movies. <laughs> right? Like, well, of course they go to the movies. Right. <laughs> You point to the percentage of black audiences, you know, but I'm wondering the critical reception of these. And when I say critical reception, I am thinking about, uh, you know, mainstream white male dominated uh, media systems that would 
have a say in some of these films? What was the critical reception like? Uh, that That's a great question. And I think that it, it's actually one of the things that I think allows other people to to go into the game, so to speak, the black exploitation game. Hmm. Cotton Comes to Harlem is actually very well re- reviewed. It's a film that um, was released by United Artists, so it was a major film studio. Uh, it was based off a very popular series of novels uh, written by a, a author named Chester Himes. He was an African-American man who was kind of displaced. He was living in France after he, he became pretty much unpublishable in the United States. And he wrote this series of novels uh, based on these two heroes you know, working as police detectives in Harlem. And so Samuel Goldwyn Jr. buys those novels and then adapts them for the screen. And, you know, he changes the, the, the film a bit and that they're not quite as gritty as the as the novels had been. But at the same time, he injects humor. He puts Harlem on grand display and he shows the life uh, and the love that exists sometimes in in such communities. And so by doing so, critics really picked up on that. They like the humor. They like the satire. And Cotton Comes to Harlem is incredibly well reviewed. Um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song is really pretty divisive. And it's not only, you know, some whites who were hesitant to look at, to, to to embrace that film, but there were there were African-American reviewers who kind of didn't quite know what to make of that film, too. So it was kind of divided. So as you watch that film, every time he gets out of a jam, he does so by using his sexuality. So there's a scene in which he um, in order to get out of his handcuffs when he initially escapes from uh, from capture from the police after he after he beats them up, he escapes. He goes to see a woman. She won't let him out of his cuffs until uh, she has sex with him. Now, of course, this does not send very good messages about women, which is one of the key problems of black exploitation cinema. But at the same time, this becomes his weapon of choice. So one of the critics for the film, when they looked at it, essentially sums his review up by saying, no one ever fucked his way to freedom. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, it, and, and it, you know, it, or let me go back. The black people can't fuck their way to freedom. Uh, if we could have, we would have celebrated the mini- millennium over 400 years ago. <laughs> right. So, so very divided. We get criti- criticisms like that. But then we have others who say this is a raw film. Huey P. Newton, who is, you know, actually, you know, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, was actually very positive about the film. He loved it. He embraced the film. And then, you know, it's just one of those things where the black intelligentsia and the press, they're very divided. With you writing on these on this movement for over 10 years, how much of this movement is properly archived and how much would you imagine that we've lost to the ether or to to business or to Hollywood or to just a a, a chasm in our own storytelling? Oh, boy, I think that because of the way black exploitation happened, uh, the emergence and how it, it, and, and it becoming so popular so quickly, I think that a lot of the what we lost from black exploitation are probably films made by companies that were created just to make black exploitation movies because they wanted to capitalize. Mm. I think those offshoots. Um, so, for example, there's a film and, and, and you may have heard of it. And I think a lot of people actually heard of it. Uh, Blackenstein. So we had Blackula and then we got Blackenstein, which was Black Frankenstein. And so American International Pictures, which is a studio that made several black exploitation films, was originally going to make Blackenstein. And then they decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make the sequel to Blackula called Scream, Blackula, Scream. So they dismissed the plans. And so there's a company called European International Pictures that is created just so it can make Blackenstein. It's terrible. The production values are bad. <laughs> um, it, but, you know, it's quickly shot. It, it, it's shoddy acting and sets. And, and it's just really a bad film. 
But we get films like that that come out of black exploitation that are still certainly worth archiving, worth taking a look at to really put the movement in full context. I think we've lost a lot of those. I also think that we have lost track. It's still hard to pinpoint exactly how many of these films were made uh, during 1970 and 75. And then again, we get the remnants or the residual films in 76, 77. I sometimes students, when I teach my black exploitation class, they will, you know, they have to write up, they pick a film and, and I tell them position it within the black exploitation movement and using the characteristics, so on and so forth. And every now and then a student will write about a film that I haven't heard of yet. And again, I have been working on this area or in this area for a long time. So a few years back, a student came to me. He gave me a film called Together Brothers. I hadn't heard of Together Brothers. I now have it in my collection because he said, you know, I'll probably never watch it again. And, and this is what you do. So here you go. So I think we've lost, you know, some films that require viewing, whether we would look at them and say they're great or, or they're poor or whatever, because, again, it gives us a full understanding of what was going on during that period. Um, fortunately, a lot of the films have been preserved or re-released even. Um, I think MGM Video has its, its you know, 70s Soul Cinema collection, so you can find a lot of the titles there. Um, there are other companies that release versions of films. Um, I have a copy of, I believe it's Richard Roundtree's film, Charlie One-Eye, and, you know, sometimes what you find is you buy those things on DVD or, or Blu-ray, and the the transfer isn't very good. They haven't been preserved very well, but you still have them to give some insight into what those films look like. So I think, you know, really some of those smaller films we lost, but, you know, it's there's been a resurgence and an interest in, in getting some of the, the more canonic films out there, as well as some of the ones that have pretty good production values. Hmm. I want to switch gears a bit and speak sure. specifically about uh, Dolomite and uh, its star, Rudy Raymore. Yeah. As a performer and a creator, where do you place Rudy Raymore? Where does he stand in the greater conversation of black exploitation? I think that Rudy Raymore is a very wonderful cult black exploitation figure. And I, I use cult because, you know, somehow, and I think it's probably because of things like the some of the campiness associated with the Dolomite, you know, or, or, or the human tornado. It's because um because of those things, he hasn't risen to the same level as, say, a Richard Roundtree, who, who played John Shaft or Tamara Dobson. But he is a fantastic cult figure whose influence can be felt and seen um, in things like hip hop and, and, and in other films as well. And so I think that he deserves a more prominent place, actually, than he's historically gotten. And as scholars, we have to step up and talk about Rudy Ray Moore more, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, you said um, cult, you know, it's like he's not necessarily off to the side, but like you said, not in the traditional uh, conversation as a Richard Roundtree or Pam Greer. What was it What was it about him and his films that made him stand out and kind of move towards cult, but also stand out as a talent on screen? I think it's that, that tendency that, that audiences have to look at something that maybe isn't slick in production value uh, or where you can, you can tell that, that, you know, okay, we're having fight scenes, but it's clear those punches aren't landing. You know, I think that it's, you know, it's that tendency to, to look at those things and, and dismiss because sometimes we attribute importance or value to authenticity or to how real something looks rather than looking at something as a whole or understanding it. And what I think the people who really love Dolomite, uh, what they understood is they, they like Rudy Ray Moore's comedy, him being a comic and essentially bringing his act to cinema. He's among the first to ever do that. And that, you know, he he swore, he used curse words in his comedy. He's, you know, we, we, we talk about Richard Pryor, but 
Rudy Ray Moore is before Richard Pryor. He influences him. And so he incorporates those things into his act. And so he had this built-in audience that I think his films really appealed to. So if you knew Rudy Ray Moore and you understood and appreciated him, him delivering Signifying Monkey in his stand-up act, you were going to appreciate hearing that in Dolomite. And so I think that it means that his built-in audience is what really um, gravitates to his films and really gives him that cult status. And they had a capability to also share his work with others. Um, the other thing is that those films weren't released, say, in the mainstream exactly or didn't get the same kind of releases, say, a Shaft. So I think all those things kind of make him a, a cult figure, but an importantly, uh, incredibly important figure at that. I love that. Finally, before we let you go, mm-hmm. you've given us a, a crazy roster of films, um, <laughs> some that I knew about, some I've never heard of ever, okay. <laughs> which now okay. I have to go digging for. But um, <laughs> can you give us your black exploitation must-watch list of films that you haven't mentioned today? Oh, boy. Okay. Um, that I have not mentioned today. Oh, that's really good. Okay. Um, <laughs> let me think here. Um because I've mentioned a lot. Okay, so here's what I would say. And this does not necessarily mean that when I say you must watch it, that this is going to be groundbreaking cinema. But I would say <laughs> that it's that they weren't watching because of their place in the movement. And some of them are good and others are, you might kind of go, why did he recommend that we watch this? <laughs> but I would say that I would even go pre-black exploitation that I would advise everyone to watch Watermelon Man. That's Melvin Van Peebles, his, his first film that he made for Columbia in 69. I mentioned it, but I would say watch that because I think it makes, we start to understand uh, the aesthetic and sweet back if we watch Watermelon Man. So I would suggest that. But films that I haven't mentioned that I, I would think that you would have to watch, I would say in terms of action heroin, it's valuable to watch Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold. That is the sequel to the first film. I think that it is also important to watch Scream Blackula Scream, which is the sequel to Blackula. There is another black exploitation horror film called Sugar Hill that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, when we say Sugar Hill, we think of a Wesley Snipes film from the 90s, but no, the black exploitation horror film is really interesting. Uh, I, and I would suggest watching that. I would also recommend watching Buck and the Preacher Man, which is sort of Sidney Poitier's foray in the black exploitation. It's a Western. Uh, and it features he and uh, Portier and Harry Belafonte. So I would recommend that. And then finally, I would watch Thomasine and Bushrod, which is another black exploitation Western that I think has, has some, it, it, you know, it's about, uh, it's a Western and it stars Max Julian and his, and his girlfriend, uh, her name is Vanetta McGee, and they're in the film. And really interesting, going up Western adventure. So I would say, those would be a list of titles that if you can access them or get to them, I would check those out. Word. Navani, thank you. You've given us given us so much. And this hit list, you've given me some homework. <laughs> no problem at all. Thanks a lot. It's really a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for tuning in for this episode. Make sure to share your thoughts about the show by hitting up our friends at Strong Black Lead on Twitter. This show is a collaboration between Netflix's Strong Black Lead and Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to executive producers Jasmine Lawson, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. And shout out my producers Agarena Shishagre and Jess Jupiter. Our original music is by Daoud Anthony. Tell your friends about the show and make sure to rate and subscribe to There's Something About Dolomite on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and wherever you get your podcasts. And that's our show. We'll see you all next week.